It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Thomas Huxley once said, learn what is true in order to do what is right. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And joining me as always is Jonathan, my co-host for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. So Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode? Well, Rick, this is part four of our series titled, Has the Bible Been Mistranslated and Misunderstood? And our theme text is found in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay, so part four of Has the Bible Been Mistranslated and Misunderstood? Coming up in today's podcast, and we do have our special guest David Stein with us for today. Coming up today, we're always saying that the Bible is God's inspired word, and yet it speaks about unicorns several times. So what's up with that? We're going to talk about this in about 15 minutes. What if the understanding of just one word could change the way churches should be organized? Just one word. Could it really be true that Christianity is missing something important here? We'll find that out in about 30 minutes. And finally, does the destiny of all believers hinge on a word that is in fact mistranslated? What are the implications? We're going to look at this and take it apart in about 45 minutes, but first, let's set our context. For any Christian, understanding the Bible and its message should be of paramount importance. The fact that the Bible is a collection of books and letters written in ancient times by various authors presents a challenge to this understanding. We need to learn what is authentic, what is mistranslated, and how it all harmonizes. So today we continue our exploration of how we got our Bible and how the process of translation from the original languages requires precision in order to get the truth that God intends. This is a necessary exercise because the Bible is the foundation of our faith. We depend upon an accurate and honest assessment of what it teaches so we in turn can believe and spread the true gospel message. Joining us again is David Stein, our good friend and fellow student of Scripture. David, great to have you back, brother. Always wonderful to be with the both of you. Uh, I've enjoyed our traveling together in uh, following the footsteps of Jesus for many years now, and I appreciate the opportunity to work with you in our study tonight. Yeah, you know, and, and it, this is it's special for me because I, I love being able to ask you the questions <laughs> and then say, what did you mean? So um, we look forward to, to your, your knowledge and your, your Bible study over so many years uh, coming to fruition for us tonight. Again, part four, has the Bible mis- mistranslated and misunderstood? So Jonathan, what we want to do is give a short summary from our mistranslation series up to this point. We're just going to, a couple of one-liners to just catch everybody up to where we are. Why don't you get us started on that? We examined how the Bible came to be compiled and what is meant by the canon of the Bible. We also looked at writings that did not meet the criteria for inclusion into the canon of the Bible. And we reviewed the sayings of Jesus with respect to the scriptures and how he quoted copiously from the Hebrew scriptures in his teachings. We also considered the question of why there are so many translations and what value these have. And we listed the many modern-day tools and helps we have to comprehend the meaning of the original languages of the Bible. We also found verses of scripture that are called spurious, meaning they were not in the original writings, but were added sometime afterward. And finally, we began a study of mistranslations that obscure and true meanings of the original languages. So we've done a lot of work in the first three parts of this series. And so, David, we're going to put you on the spot again in part four here. And we're really going to continue as we go through mistranslations that obscure meaning. Okay, we're going to start with several 
simple examples of mistranslations that are not earth-shaking, but should be noted and should be understood. So, Jonathan, let's go to our first scripture, Acts chapter 12, verse 4. And this is the King James Version. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quatrinians of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Okay, so David, our question is going to be regarding that word Easter in this scripture. Um, you know, it, it might be easy to say, well, it's a, you know, it's a mistranslation. And, you know, I'm sure you're going to give us a whole lot on this. But we did get uh, quite a, a lengthy, detailed explanation from a listener maybe a year, year and a half ago. And he was, in, in, in his perspective, explaining why the word Easter here is not a mistranslation. So, David, what's your take on that word in relation to Greek and Scripture? Well, first of all, it's always good to get feedback from listeners, and this particular listener did a very fine job of putting together uh, some uh, argumentation uh, in favor of it. But if we look at some other things, we really have to question whether it should be retained or not. First of all, we read from the King James Version because there's not too many other versions that have it. The King James Version was based upon the Tyndall translation, and only the Tyndall and King James translate the Greek word here as Easter. Every other trans English translation, and let me repeat, every other English translation uses a reference to the Jewish spring festival of Passover. Uh, Pascha is the Greek word day, and it refers to Passover and the associated uh, feast of unleavened bread. Now, the Greek here, Brother Rick, is very clear. Uh, it's, it's, it's used 29 times in the New Testament. And in every other occasion, in the King James Bible, and, and certainly in other translations as well, but every other occasion, it is translated Passover. So just the preponderance of usage elsewhere should dictate to us, at least to uh, not lead us astray as to what the proper translation is. And of course, even if you have an issue with it, translating it as Passover should be pretty comfortable. Now, one of the things that, uh, that was brought up is that the, that particular listener found fault with us in not making a distinction uh, between the days of unleavened bread and the Passover. And he says that distinction is one reason why he felt that the King James refers to Easter. Okay, so he was, he was saying then that the Passover is its own day, and the days of unleavened bread are their own festival, if you will, after the Passover. Exactly, Got exactly. Okay. Uh, but we have a scripture— in Luke chapter 22, verse 1, that I think uh, gives us uh, an association that it's real hard to uh, escape from. And not that we want to escape from it, but it addresses his, his uh, argument. Luke 22, 1 reads, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. So what are we seeing here? We're saying that the feast of, of unleavened bread is synonymous with the Passover. So, yes, the Passover has some specific meanings. It can refer to the animal that's sacrificed. It can refer to the meal. Or it can, as in this case, refer to the entire feast. And so we really don't have any uh, argument, at least from Scripture, that this should be an exception to the rule. Not that we deny that there are exceptions. But in this case, there doesn't seem to be any foundation for seeing it any other way than the Passover. And uh, certainly King uh, Herod, uh, who was uh, an Edomite, but he was ruler of the Jews, he would have recognized the importance of that festival and therefore would have put, put aside or put later his dealing with Peter. That's the context there, uh, waiting until it was over. Okay, so what you're saying is that you look at this word Easter, and unequivocally it is a mistranslation because it does mean Passover, and you can see that in all of the other times it's used. And the idea that, well, it was after the actual Passover, it sounds like the scripture is saying that this word was used, doesn't make it of none effect. It just simply says, no, it's referring to the whole eight days because the scriptures do that for us in other places. So Exactly. Okay, so it's pretty straightforward and pretty sensible. You, get the, you, you look at the definition— and then you look at other scriptures to see if all of that verifies, and in fact, it does. So, good. Simple word, simple uh, approach on that, and you get some context from other scriptures. So let's go to another example of a simple mistranslation. So, Jonathan, let's go to John 12, 32. 
and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. All right, now, David, look, I don't know what you're going to find wrong with this. I mean, this is a nice scripture. You know, lift it up. Jesus resurrected. He draws all men to himself. What could be bad about that? Well, nothing's bad about that. <laughs> uh, the point here is not so much of a mistranslation, but an addition. Uh-huh. If you go to the original Greek, you will find the word men there. He simply says, I will draw all unto myself. So you're, now, you're, you're saying that the word men is supplied by translators and it was not in the original manuscript. Exactly right. Okay, okay. Now, you know, that's a natural thing to supply, to draw them into. After all, Jesus came to die for men. But the point being here, or the point we're trying to make, is that Jesus didn't limit himself to just that one thing. And, and that's the idea. Men is, there's nothing wrong with seeing men here. But if we limit ourselves to that, then we fail to see that the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, does a whole lot of other things besides just the redemption of men. Okay, let, let's go to Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. And, and David, I think that fits into what you're saying. Then you can give us a little more commentary. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. David? What you can see here in this scripture that it doesn't restrict itself to say to reconcile all men to himself, but all things. Hmm. The, the death of Jesus, at least according to the Bible, uh, reconciles things in heaven and in earth, as it says here. Uh, all things are reconciled to God through Christ's death. And when we consider that there has been a rebellion of the fallen angels, now we start to see perhaps a little bit more of what God's plan has in mind for that, because he's got to do some reconciliation on the spiritual plane as well. Jesus was certainly aware of the scope of uh, putting things back in order. So his sacrifice on the cross was a necessary act of faith, uh, but this would permit him to destroy everything out of harmony with God's law and bring healing and oneness to all creation. So supplying the one word men changes the fullness of, of the meeting here. So <laughs> it's funny because it, it detracts from the magnitude of Jesus' sacrifice and that Colossians scriptures helps us understand that. And you know, David, reading that, you just never would get that. And yet when you look at other scriptures in the Bible, you can see the, the, the fullness of God's plan. So when it says, I'm lifted up from the earth and I will draw all to myself, now you look at it and say, wow, it is bigger. It is bigger than I thought. Yeah, and, and the scope, uh, uh, seeing a larger scope here helps us to understand other things too. Remember the scripture that says, we shall judge men and angels. Right, right. Well, in the scope of this reconciliation, we are going to have a privilege in helping to do that. I mean, judging men, that goes without saying, we're going to be king and priest, but Paul says we're going to judge angels as well. So uh, we have a scope here, which is just so exciting and so wonderful that we've been invited to participate in. That's so cool. And, and that's really one of the themes that we're going through uh, in today's podcast. You know, correcting even the simple and seemingly insignificant tr mistranslations helps us round out our biblical knowledge. What about unicorns in the Bible? Or Jesus telling us to hate our families and the coming end of the world? Did you say unicorns? You know, it cannot be overstated that the Bible is an ancient and therefore is ancient and therefore needs close attention when we read these things that just don't seem right. Our job here is to find real meanings as well as observe how they fit into the overall harmony of God's Word. Such discovery is a responsibility and it's a privilege. And I might add, it's a whole lot of fun. It really is, to just look and dig and see God's plan coming, coming out. So let's go to another mistranslation. Well, and this one, while it doesn't affect the faith of, of a dedicated Christian, it does supply detractors with a little ammunition for mocking, because here's a scripture about unicorns. Jonathan, Job 39, verses 9 through 10. And this is in the King James Version. Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee, or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow, or will he harrow the valleys after thee? Okay, so David, uh, we're going to ask you about unicorns, but I just want to tell you to be a little careful 
I have two five-year-old granddaughters, and unicorns are big with them. So what have you got? No pressure. <laughs> well, <laughs> we certainly don't want to discourage granddaughters. I, I, I've got 10 of them myself, you know, so we got to be very careful there. Well, let's, let's just take a step outside of Scripture here for a moment. Um, we're pretty sure that there's no unicorns exist, but you can't prove a negative. I don't know. Maybe somewhere at some time God created unicorns. I don't know. But our focus here is on what the Bible says and what the word is. Now, as you mentioned, detractors would look at this and say, oh, you goofy Christians or you believers and whatnot. You know, that shows the Bible's wrong. It mentions unicorns. Well, in point of fact, that the word, the, the Hebrew word for unicorn here uh, doesn't mean that. Now, I'm going to take a step back and uh, try to give a little credit to the translators of the King James uh, Bible. Uh, in 1611, not even the scientists at the time were sure whether unicorns really existed. In fact, there was one authoritative work uh, at that time by 16th century naturalist Conrad Gasner, who referred, this is a scientist now, he referred to unicorns in his writings. In fact, he tells his readers how to tell a true unicorn uh, horn from a knockoff. You know? So <laughs> that, that's the, that's the uh, setting under which these translators work. So uh, the King James Version has nine references to unicorns. And again, they, they really refer to a wild bull. The Hebrew word there, strong 7214, is not a unicorn. But again, we can't blame these fellows uh, too very much because they were operating under what was considered to be uh, the science and technology of the time. Okay, so I guess we're not going to, we're going to avoid the disappointing of the granddaughters, uh, but we are going to say that the scriptures don't talk about unicorns because the word actually means something different, it means a wild bull. So again, folks, these are mistranslations, and these are the kind at this moment that are, okay, they're there, just you need to understand that, that, that they're there, they're not earth-shattering. Let's get to another one that's a little bit more difficult. In our next scripture, we're going to see how a word taken in the colloquial meaning presents us with a problem, and this is going to be all about love and hatred. So, Jonathan, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This, David, sounds harsh. Jesus is saying, hate your own life and make sure you hate your family as well. Is that what he's saying? Well, no, it's not. I mean, it does, as it's translated, come across to us very, very harshly. Uh, in the Koine Greek, the common Greek word but that, that was uh, spoken by the public there, the word used here is missio. Now, you can translate it hate, but because of the our understanding of the word hate, that's not really the best translation. Uh, I don't know of another English word that might work here, but let's just take a look at what missio means and what the idea was. Remember, Jesus was trying to teach his, his uh, followers uh, the order of precedence of what's important in their lives. And the most important thing in their lives was their service to God. That was uh, more important than everything, in particular when Jesus was there, uh, the service and the following of him. So Jesus wanted his, under, his uh, followers to understand that that was more important, the, the love and dedication to him, than the love and dedication to the family. He was not saying that they should take an active uh, despising of, of husbands and wives. and That's not at all what Jesus meant. But he was trying to make a contrast. And the word hate is, is probably the only word that, that comes up in English that would come close to this. It's, it's too harsh, admittedly. But the idea here is just to contrast um, how we feel about God and Jesus and how we feel toward others. It's a matter of priority. You know, Jonathan, it kind of reminds me of we've been talking about the Ten Commandments and it's put God first and everything else after. That's what Jesus is saying here, that if you don't put your family beneath your dedication to me, you're not, you can't be my follower. So it's that loving less. And it's interesting, when we look at John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, it uses this same word. And, and folks, when we read through this scripture, think of it in terms of not necessarily hate as in despising and, you know, just, you know, road rage hate. But think of it in terms of loving less, of, of not having as high an appreciation. And just and it gives you, I think, a better sense. Jonathan, 1 John 3, 13 to 15. 
Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, David, it doesn't have to be this big hatred, but it could be just looking at you with with less esteem, perhaps. Yeah, exactly right. The context is so important here. Now, John uses the very same word that Jesus does. But Jesus was trying to make it make an effect. He was trying to get his followers to think. You remember one time he says that unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have yeah. no part in me. Oh, boy, somebody heard that and they, they went out. But Jesus meant something else about that. And those that loved him stayed. So here, this this was uh, pr- probably harsh to the, hear- to the uh, hearing of his, uh, his uh, hearers there as well. But he was doing it for a purpose in order to make them think. Again, this is an example where our, our topic is, has the Bible been mistranslated and misunderstood? Here's, a, here's a, a case where the mistranslation is maybe not so much of a mistranslation, but it's misunderstood right. because we don't understand just how that word was being used and, and the specific device Jesus was used to teach a lesson. Yeah, and that scripture you brought up about eating his flesh and drinking his blood is a great example because Jesus pushes the envelope when he describes yes. things to make a point. So good, good. All right, let, let's go on to another one. We want to just fly through some of these. Our next mistranslation, we as Christians are frequently the subject of cruel jokes because of our prophetic expectations. So the next mistranslation or difficulty we're going to talk about is it has to do with the end of the world. And it's interesting because as Christians talk about the end of the world, what we end up with is a lot of scoffing, and that is actually predicted in Scripture, 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. There's the mocking. Right, David? <laughs> yeah. You know, I've heard this self, myself in, uh, in preaching and witnessing to the world. They say, oh, you, are you so stupid you think the world's going to come to an end? Look, it's millions of years old. we got science going all the way back. And, you know, for you to say that. Uh, so, so they, number one, they misunderstand what it's all about. And this misunderstanding is queued up very much because the translation wasn't accurate. Okay, so let's look at uh, a couple of scriptures. Jonathan, let's go to Matthew 13, 39, um, and just give us a sense of what that, that verse is, and then, and then you've got two other Matthew scriptures there, so just, just walk us through the three, the three of these verses. Sure, and this is, they are all from the American Standard Version. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. And in Matthew 13, 49, it says, So shall it be in the end of the world. The angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the righteous. And Matthew 24, verse 3, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? And I just wanted to mention uh, that also, this is brought up in Matthew 28, 20, and Hebrews 9, 26. All right, David, it certainly sounds like the end of the world. Jesus keeps saying it again and again and again. What do we do with that? What does it mean? Well, there, there is a delightful and very refreshing answer. And before I go there, I just want to note that the, in our um, series here in Mistranslations, you know, we're picking and choosing which versions to read from. Uh, Jonathan just read from the American Standard Version because we wanted to use that version that has this expression. In more modern translations, they don't have it, so we couldn't make our point. Uh, but the King James, American Standard, and others that do contain this are still very influential and used by right. many people. So right. just as an explanation to our listeners why we jump around here, we're making the point that uh, many modern translations do, in fact, correct a lot of these things. Well, here's the point, the end of the world. Um it's not talking about the end of the world. The word in Greek there is the Greek word ion, Strong's number 165. And guess what it means? Not world, but age. There's another Greek word for world. It's, it's cosmos. Remember Carl Sagan's cosmos series? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's talking about the material world, the material universe. But that's not the word that's used here. Ion, and it means age. So Jesus is saying the harvest is the end of the age. 
And we'll see that in some of the other translations that will give us an example. So it's at the end of the age that there will be a change. Okay, so you're saying when it says end of the world, it actually means end of the age, and it's not meaning the end of the physical world that spins on its axis and, and goes around you know, the, 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 the sun. It's the end of the age or the end of a time. So let's look at some examples of that. Jonathan, just again, Matthew 13, 39, just sum up what, what we're looking at here. Sure. David mentioned modern examples of uh, translations. Well, the New International Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the Young's Literal Translation all translated end of the age. And in the Weymouth, they say the close of the age. So they're really consistent with what David just brought up. Okay, so the harvest is the end of the age, the end of the period of time. Exactly right. By the way, just a little note, connect up with English. We have a word in English that is very similar to the word aeon. Eon. What is an eon in English? It's an age. It's a period of time. Right. And David, I have a question. Well, it's a close of an age, the end of the age. Then what? <laughs> that's a great that's a great question Jonathan end of the world that sounds really bad but end of the age requires a, an explanation as well well you know in the scripture there are many ages that are defined and when one age ends another age begins you know and that's why Jesus in the Lord's prayer that we all know said thy kingdom come thy will be done this is what you pray for why because this age ends and what has to come another age the age of god's kingdom thy kingdom come so you see by just understanding the meaning of the word world meaning age completely changes our understanding of what god's plan has to offer it is not the end of the world and you know burning up in fire it's the end of an age which brings something greater something beautiful in, 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 in harmony with God's plan. So, you know, it's really amazing how much difference one word makes. Get the meanings right and understand God's plan. Understanding some words changes what we believe. Can understanding one word change the way we organize our churches? As Christians, our whole lives should be driven by scriptural precepts. It's natural to look back on things written 2,000 or more years ago and think, well, that all needs updating. While it is important to apply these things to our modern lives with practicality, the ancient precepts we are given still stand firm. So it's one thing to apply something practically. It's another thing to change it to make it convenient. What we're trying to do here is stick to what the scriptures originally said and originally meant whether it's convenient or not and you know sometimes that can be difficult so david our next text we're going to look at uh, a greek word that directly impacts the organization of how any church will run and this is this is again folks a small word pay close attention to how this all all works out jonathan let's go to acts chapter 14 verse 23 and this is from the king james version and when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Okay, and if you look at the Douay translation, it says the same thing, right? That's right, ordained. Okay, and David, when you look at that, ordained just sounds like a very official— when I hear the word ordained, I envision robes and solemnity and, and, and kind of like an appointing. So what do we have here? According to oh, Greek. So, so, solemnity, I like that word. That, that, that helps me today. <laughs> the, uh, you know, we, you're absolutely right. When we think of ordination, we think of a, it's a very formal process. Uh, in fact, people say, well, who, who, who ordained you? It's like that there was some authority, some ecclesiastical authority that reserves unto itself the, uh, the authority to bring other ministers in. But that's not at all what the word means. The word ordained uh, does not have the sense of any special ritual, but actually something very, very simple. Uh, it comes from uh, the, uh, the Greek uh, word um, 5500, the Strong's 5500. And the word is chirantonio. And the word chire, which is the first part of that, means hand. Chirantonio means stretching the hand forth. And in fact, if you go to classical Greek, uh, you remember the, the classical Greek city-states. They had legislators there. 
And when the legislators would decide on a new law, on a measure, or the appointment of man, they would Kyer Antonio that individual. What does that mean? It means that they would stretch forth their hand to vote. That's exactly <laughs> what it means to vote or to elect or select. That is the basis part of, uh, of what the word is all about. So what it is saying is from an organizational standpoint that individual churches have the privilege of voting on those who will serve as elders. And by the way, you mentioned the Douay version that says ordained. Uh, the Douay says ordained them priests. King James says ordained them elders. Uh, again, when they put the word priests in there in front of elders, it, it has that ecclesiastical kind of overtones to it. But that's it shouldn't say priest. It should be elders. Those are the, the, uh, the men from the church who are appointed by the church to do certain things. Okay, that's a very, very dramatic difference from the way most churches operate. You know, go ahead, Jonathan. And we we actually did an episode, episode 1140, and it, the title was, Does My Church Leadership Have It Right? So that's a great podcast to listen to. Yeah, and we, we did touch on this in that episode as well. David, go ahead. Yeah, you know, and, and we used an example a little bit ago about ion and eon. Yes. We actually have an English word where you have that word chire in there. Remember, the word is chire Antonio, to stretch with the hand to vote. But how many of you have gone to a chiropractor? I raised my hand, but I don't think anyone saw me. Yeah. No, no, yeah, well, <laughs> until you go to video, that's right. Well, a chiropractor, what does he do? He uses his hands to manipulate the spine. He moves the spine around and uh, corrects problems and whatnot by means of his hands. And that's why they called a chiropractor, the doctor who serves by his hands. Isn't that, that's fascinating to me when you understand how our language got to be and, and the, the, the origins. Cairo you gives you that sense of hand. So the word here is a reaching forth of the hand and not an appointing. It's a reaching of forth of the hand in terms of voting. Uh, Jonathan, let's actually go through um, just some commentary from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Just go through these several lines here uh, about what their perspective is on this. Well, there is no evidence in the New Testament that the word had then lost a proper meaning, as this is beyond doubt its meaning in 2 Corinthians 8.19. And as there is indisputable evidence that the concurrence of the people was required in all elections to sacred office in the earliest ages of the church, it is perhaps better to understand the words to mean when they had made a choice of elders, that is, superintended such choice on the part of the disciples. So David, when it says when they had made a choice, it it's doing what you described earlier in, in, in Greek government is when they stretch their hand forth to vote. That's right. You know, the, in that case, the legislature, the, the, those representatives there had the authority. What we're saying here is that the authority to select elders lies with the church who make the vote. And it's interesting, uh, in Barnes' notes, you have some similar thoughts there, but Barnes contrasts the more uh, accepted colloquial meaning that, that is used in the mainstream churches today. He says there in one sense, he says, the word ordained now we use in an ecclesiastical sense to denote a setting apart to an office by an imposition of hands. But listen to this. But it is evident that the word here is not employed in that sense. Rather, it was chosen of the church that is appointed or elected by suffrage of the churches. So he himself is saying, no, that's not what this means, and the way that it's done is not intended by this word at all. Okay, so you just said a mouthful in that last sentence. You know, you just snuck that last sentence in. The way that it's done is not what's intended by Scripture, essentially. Yeah, if we want to go back to uh, our original Christianity, to the book of Acts, then we see that there, there wasn't an ecclesiastical stru structure. They didn't have one person that was in charge of everything. I mean, even the, uh, the authority of the apostles uh, was somewhat mediated by the churches. You know, for example, when, when Paul and Barnabas went on a missionary tour together, um, it was the church at Antioch that voted to send them forth as apostles. That's they right. were apostles of the church of Antioch. Now, of course, Paul was an apostle of the Lamb as well but the authority lay, lay within the church itself. And that's something that has been lost uh, through the centuries with the growth of, of what we call today mainstream Christianity, where they have uh, very large ecclesiastical structures, we say management structures, 
uh, people that are in charge of people. There is no indication in uh, early Christianity, in the book of Acts, or in the writings of Paul's, that anything like that was suggested or encouraged. Rather, the primitive churches, just by themselves, were all independent. They voted and elected their own elders. And although we don't have examples of it, I think the inference is if an elder doesn't do his job, he doesn't get elected. Hmm. Uh, he gets deselected, de if you will. So the brethren in the church had, had that responsibility. And to add one more thing to it, they were accountable. They recognized that their choice had to be led by the Holy Spirit, not their preference. This wasn't a population uh, or a popularity contest, but rather uh, Paul gives us specific qualities that they used as a guide to make their choices. So it was about the Spirit guiding them, and it was about each individual having equal say because they were driven by the Spirit. That's a powerful, powerful way to look at things, and we find that through understanding one little word in its appropriate way. Jonathan, let's just read that Acts 14.23 from the Young's Literal Translation. And having appointed to them by vote elders of every assembly, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Yeah, David, that sounds like this, that sense of community, working together, coming to a decision, and then sending them out because they're, they're, they're seeing God's will being done. Yeah, very, very clear here. And of course, you know, as Paul traveled around, he didn't know many of these brethren personally, their, their habits, their character and whatnot, but they were known in the churches. So that's where the choice should be made. Interesting, interesting. Very different. But folks, again, what we're doing is we're going back to Scripture, and we're trying to take away all of the, the, the predetermined thinking and say, what do the Scriptures actually teach us? So one more time that this word is for, quote, ordain, unquote, again, stretching of the hand, voting is used, is in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 16 through 19. Jonathan, why don't you just go through that for us? And this is the New King James Version. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And he has set with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. Okay, so David, that word for chosen is the same word, right? Exactly. Now, how would this brother have been chosen except by the churches? They voted for him. They authorized him to uh, go on the trip there, and again, the authority lay with them. It's an amazing concept, and it shouldn't be amazing because it's scriptural and it's ancient and it's there. What we need to do is get through the cobwebs of time so we can understand the clarity of God's truth. And then, Jonathan, just Young's literal translation of verse 19 of the verses we just read. And not only so, but who was also appointed by vote by the assemblies, our fellow traveler, with this favor that is ministered by us unto the glory of the same Lord in your willing mind. So clearly, as we look at these scriptures and the meaning of the word as backed up by authorities who understand it, we see that the Lord Jesus intends the churches to be independently responsible for choosing their teachers and their shepherds. Uh, and they have to use the qualifications that Paul gave. Why else would he give the qualifications if it wasn't so that they could make the right choice? Not so somebody else could make it, but they would make it. And so it really makes very simple uh, the uh, structure of uh, what should exist within the Christian church. And an observation that I came to is, since most churches are steeped in tradition, most likely understanding the scriptures, the true meaning, won't really change a thing. Yeah, you know, and, and but here's the thing, folks. What we're doing is we're looking and saying, study for yourself, look at the words, look at the cross-references, look it up for yourself, and see what the meanings actually are, and then decide, is this what I want to follow? Because if it is, follow what the Scriptures say. That's what this is about. That's why understanding these mistranslations is so very, very important. You know, time and tradition can be liabilities as well as assets. How do we know which one is present? Find original truth. Are there any biblical issues where one word is translated in very different ways? How do we handle this? <laughs> well, 
Well, this is not common in Scripture. It is definitely an issue. When we uncover such things, the key question is to ask, why? Why would any key word in Scripture be subject to more than one meaning, especially if one of the attributed meanings is not authentic? So the answer is that some doctrinal bias plays a role. It's here that we need to be extra, extra careful. So, David, our next word that we're going to develop here is going to be a Hebrew word from the Old Testament. Then we're going to go on to the Greek counterparts, counterparts plural. And before you get started, I'm just going to preface it by saying what you're going to uncover is kind of messy. (laughs) Well, it is messy because of some of those prejudices we've seen. But this is another case where you, you as an individual, any of us as individuals, we have the tools necessary to go back and see what the words are and how they're used. Now, the word we're going to take a look at is a Hebrew word. So at this point in time, we're, we're just uh, staying to the Old Testament. And the word is sheol. And it seems like the translators of various Bible translations had some problems with this Hebrew word. In the King James, for example, it renders sheol grave 31 times, hell 30 times, and pit three times. So here's a perfect example of one Hebrew word being uh, rendered in different ways. Now, the American Standard Version, Revised Standard Version, just render it shield. Maybe a little bit of a cop-out. They didn't (laughs) want to get involved in any interpretation, so they just kept it originally. The NIV has grave, but it's got a footnote saying shield to allow readers to decide for themselves. Of course, somebody might ask, what is it they have to decide? What does it mean? Well, in Strong's uh, um, dictionary, the shield is Strong's number 7585. And it refers, according to Strong's, to Hades or the world of the dead, including its accessories, inmates, grave, hell, pit. Now, I think this is an example where we have to be careful that even authorities that we use are, are still subject to some uh, doctrinal preconceptions about it. And we've seen this in Vine's Concordance. So you have to be a little bit careful. And not that we reject it, but uh, there is some additional baggage that it puts in. Now, why do translators render it with different words? Well, the short answer is that it's an unconscious decision based upon preconceptions. Okay, 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 hold on. An unconscious decision based on preconceptions. So what you're saying is that we walk into our translating work or our study work with an idea of what the scripture should say, and you're basically saying that even these people who did such hard and really wonderful work walked in with those same kinds of preconceptions? Yeah, and that's why we say unconscious. We're not saying that anybody, any one of them, is going about deliberately to deceive, but they have certain ideas in their minds that direct their thinking, and they can't help that. I mean, all of us have it. As Bible students, all of us has to be very careful of our own prejudices as we study the Bible, because we're very likely as anyone else to read things in. But with this word shield, we mentioned earlier that it was rendered uh, 30 times as hell. Well, most people within the mainstream Christianity, you talk about hell, they have a certain idea. So Sheol must be in hell. Well, all of a sudden you come a problem. You find a verse where it doesn't fit. Oh, okay, so what do I do? Well, I'll render it a different way. You see, that's what what we're talking about here of why words are rendered away. Because sometimes our understanding or our, our preconception of what it means doesn't fit. And maybe we don't realize it means we need to go back and look at the preconception, but rather we'll just do it uh, a different main. Shield means the grave. Let's get right down to what what we think the truth of the matter is. It simply means the grave, the resting place of the dead. Nothing more complex than that. Everyone goes to the grave, good or bad. Okay, so let's take a look at a couple examples of this. Sheol meaning the grave. Jacob, righteous Jacob, wrote this in Genesis 37, 35. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in the morning by my son. So his father wept for him. Okay, so Jacob, the righteous follower of God, says, Surely I will go down to Sheol. And David, you said that means the grave. 
in mourning for my son. It's it's going to take my life from me. That's yeah, yeah. And you can see that if you rendered it hell here, it wouldn't make sense. Jacob says, "I'm going to go to hell." What? I, that doesn't make any sense. But he says, "If I'm going to go to the grave, the Shia, well, that makes perfect sense. He's mourning for his son, and he says, "I'm going to continue to mourning till I die and go into the grave." Okay. Another example is Job. Now we know the story, the the account of Job, and how he really was a righteous man who was a man who wanted with everything in him to always serve God. Job 17, 13. If I look for Sheol as my home, I make my bed in the darkness. So David, it sounds like the same thing. He is despairing, and he's talking about, it sounds like he's talking about the darkness of death. Exactly. Poor Job was even in a worse condition than Jacob. Jacob had thought he lost Joseph, lost his son. But Job lost his all of his children, hmm. Uh, and then he was—he lost property. He, then he was afflicted by this loathsome disease. He's in pain. He's in agony, and he just wants to die to bring it to an end. He's a righteous man, but again, you can see that if I—if we translated hell, I look for hell as my home. Well, wait a second—that doesn't make sense. So we look for grave. That makes perfect sense, consistent with its usage elsewhere. Okay, so that's what we want to do. We want to be consistent with this. And, and you know, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5 and verse 10, help us to understand the condition of Sheol, the condition of the grave. Jonathan, let's go there. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. And verse 10, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. This is a, a very nice and consistent definition of the word Sheol. The, the abode of the dead, that when you are dead, then there's no more thinking, no more activity, no more planning. You are there awaiting your awakening. And by the way, it connects up very nicely with resurrection. Yeah. Because when you're dead, you, you need to be resurrected in order to live again, just like Jesus did, uh, just like Lazarus did. There were some examples in the Old Testament. It makes perfect sense and completely consistent with the idea that Sheol is the grave. Okay, so that's an Old Testament perspective. Well, gentlemen, I have a trivia question for you. How many times does the phrase heaven and hell occur in the scriptures? All right, David, how many? That's a, no, well, that's a good question. We, we, we hear it in the English language all the time. The, the poets and English literature and whatnot use it quite a lot. But the answer is it never occurs. The phrase heaven and hell, just that, does never occur in the, in the uh, scriptures. Now, we do find one verse where they're associated together, but it's a contrast of a different will. Rather, the phrase heaven and earth as an alternative occurs many times uh, in scripture, 28 times in the American Standard Version and 31 times in King James Version. Okay. So, you know, the, the idea that heaven and hell as a phrase doesn't, doesn't appear, it makes us think, okay? It makes us think. What the word means makes us think. The application of the word makes us think. So now let's transition to the New Testament. We've got that Old Testament word for Sheol. You know, we can do the same exercise with Greek, uh, the Greek words Hades, the rendered hell in the New Testament, and other words as well. There's two other Greek words that are also translated hell. So let's start with one of those, and we're going to use the one that Jesus used and this one, David, this one sounds pretty serious. Matthew 5, 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, doesn't that just completely blow up everything you just said? No, it sounds pretty bad, though, doesn't it? Yes. Well, he, again, here's an example of, of three different um, Greek words translated by one word, hell. And this is the first of the three. Now, interestingly enough, the word Jesus used here is not Hades. We might have thought, based upon preconceptions, well, that's what Jesus is talking about, Hades. But that's not the word he used. Rather, he uses another word, Gehenna. It's Strong's 1067. And Gehenna occurs 13 times in scriptures. Now, Jesus chose this word very carefully because he understood that the Jews there in, the, in Jerusalem and in Israel would understand what was meant when he used the word Gehenna. It just so happens that Gehenna 
was the local name for a valley in Jerusalem, valley to the south, the Valley of Hinnom. And this is an actual valley. When I was in Israel about three years ago, I actually walked through it. Now, what the valley was used for back in the time of Jesus uh, was a garbage dump. Now, prior to that, if you go back in ancient times, it was it was the place, some terrible sacrifices that were made to pagan gods where they, they burned their children. Right. But in the time of Jesus, that had long since passed, the time of Jesus, it was a garbage dump. And so they would throw their garbage out. You know, they, they didn't have garbage collectors like we got today, right? They have to take their garbage to the refuse somewhere. And they would throw it into the valley of Hinnom, over the cliff. Now, you want that to consume, so they kept fires burning there. And uh, whoever the attendants were would throw sulfur in from time to time to keep the fires burning and to consume uh, the refuse. Now, here's the point, and here's what Jesus was saying. The point is, anything that was thrown into Gehenna, into the valley of Hinnom, anything, was consumed and destroyed. And so Jesus saw that as a very visual way that hearers could understand what the punishment of destruction was. If you are destroyed by God with the Gehenna destruction, you are destroyed everlastingly, totally, thoroughly. That was the symbol that he used. Now, by the way, we're going to get to it in a moment, but that symbol is used with a different phrase called the lake of fire. A little little teaser here. We're going to get to that in a minute. Okay, so so the idea of Gehenna literally is when Jesus talked about it, they knew where Gehenna was because it was a garbage dump. It wasn't some subterranean changer, chamber with lava. It was a garbage dump that fires burned in to consume everything in it so it would be no more. And nothing alive was ever thrown in. Is that right, David? That is correct. Right. That is correct. And it wasn't below ground. It wasn't subterranean, as was mentioned. This is above ground. So quite different from the concept of Hades. So again, to. Jesus is saying you're, you're, you're subject to the garbage dump, and you know what happens that everything goes there. It goes away. It's gone. It's, it's, it's annihilated. So now, okay, so that's the Gehenna. There's, there is one other word in the New Testament translated hell before we get to the Hades word, um, and it's found only one time. So this is a little bit of an anomaly, if you will. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Okay, so David, before we get to your explanation here, let me just recap we started with the Old Testament word Sheol. There's that one word in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we've discussed the garbage dump, Gehenna, and now we've got this other word, cast them into hell. This is not Hades then, correct? That is correct. What, uh, this, so, so, so what is this and what does this mean? Well, as you mentioned, this is the only occurrence in Scripture of this word. The Greek word is Tartaru. It's Strong's 5020. And this is a very specific judgment that is made against the angels. Again, you'll notice there's no reference to men here going to Tartaru. That's right. This was the angelic beings, and it's a very important thing to note. Uh, you remember in the time of Noah, the angels had left their proper place and materialized bodies, cohabited with women, and were in part very much responsible for the violence at that time. That was against what God had wanted. They disobeyed the law that he had for them. And so what Peter tells us is there is that they were judged by being cast into this Tartarus condition, pits of darkness, and to be reserved for judgment. Now, again, you and I both know that Satan and his angels are very active today. So they're not in some subterranean chamber called Tartarus somewhere, but rather they are in a condition of darkness. They're not able to function uh, as they would normally. Now, one little footnote on this, which I, I came to learn some years ago that I really appreciated. Most of us are, are familiar with Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. And you ever wonder, well, where did, where did all these ideas come from? We think that many of these ideas came from the stories of what life was like before the flood. I mean, think about it. These angels come down. How do they appear to men? Well, like, like gods. They have powers. They can do things. They're stronger. They're bigger. Uh, they probably have, have a, what would be considered magic. Uh, they fight among themselves. They're not particularly happy. Well, this describes the gods of Olympus. And so much of Greek mythology may, in fact, find its root in the actual happenings before the flood. Now, one more note. Within that Greek mythology, there's the story of the Titans. Now, the Titans were the sons of Zeus, 
and they rebelled against Zeus. And so Zeus sent them down to a punishment. And guess what the punishment was called? Tartarus, Tartaru. There it is again. And so Peter, picking up on this, he says that the sons of God, these fallen angels, were also sent to Tartarus. Many of his people, that new Greek mythology, would pick up right away on what this is. The rebellion of some sons of God against God, and then they are being judged. So it's a wonderful confirmation, I think, of the truth. Most everybody thinks the mythology just came from the imaginations of men, and much of it, of what was added, did. But we see a connection here with the, what actually happened on Earth. Yeah, so many stories are founded in some kind of truth somewhere along the line. So this Tartarus, then, is this restraining of darkness, not able to see everything that you could see before, not able to do everything you could do, but still having some ability to move move through, if you will. So again, Jonathan, let's go back to Second Peter 2, 4, but this time let's do the Young's literal translation. For if God messengers who sinned did not spare, but with chains of thick gloom, having cast them down to Tartarus, did deliver them to judgment, having been reserved. So the Young's literal translation doesn't read as smoothly, but it gives you all of the important points. Chains of glo- thick gloom, so they have this restraint. And again, when, when darkness is shown in Scripture, it shows you that it's away from the light of God. And that's really what we're looking at here. So again, this is the only time this word is ever used in Scripture, correct, David? Yes. Okay. Okay, so we have the Gehenna word. That's the garbage dump. That's used 13 different times. And now we have this word Tartaru, Tartarus, used just once in relation to angels, fallen angels specifically. So finally now, let's get to the other word, the Greek word Hades. This occurs 11 times in the New Testament. Its meaning is very similar to the Old Testament Sheol, namely the common grave of mankind, your abode after death. The Bible shows that even Jesus went to Hades. Now, how would we know that? Well, let's read Acts 2, verse 27, and then verse 31. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So what does all this mean, David? How do you put this together, Jesus going to Hades? Well, the verse clearly says that Jesus went to Hades. If we translated hell, again, using the preconceived notions of that, we have to scratch our head. But we see that Hades is the Greek equivalent of Sheol. It just means he went into the grave. We all know that he died, and then he was put into the grave. That was Hades to him. And from that, he was resurrected by God's power out of Hades. He conquered death in the sense of this resurrection by God's power. He conquered death in the grave, and he will also permit all of his followers to come forth from the grave as well. That's the hope that we have, a most marvelous hope. So, you know, when we look at this— what we're seeing is, again, by looking at the definition of some very specific words, we're seeing how much of Bible truth hinges on the understanding of these very specific particular words. Hades and Sheol are two such words. The idea of Hades and Sheol meaning death. And so when you understand it that way, now let's look at Matthew sixteen eighteen from New American Standard Bible. Uh, these are the words of Jesus. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What is he talking about there? Well, the church Jesus knew would be persecuted for 2,000 plus years. Jesus knew that, and he knew that all of those that died because of the persecution would be just like their master, not lost in Hades or locked in Hades, but there would be a death or there would be a victory over that death. And that's what it means. The gates of Hades, the gates of the grave, will not prevail against the church. They will come forth from the grave just as Jesus did. So that's a miraculous, powerful view. And you, you, in my mind, I visualize Jesus by Lazarus' tomb saying, Lazarus, come forth. And he who was dead came forth. And then his, Jesus' next words were, untie him, set him free. And that's really the picture of what we're looking at. Okay, so let's go to, to one more verse, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five. But Jonathan, we've got all kinds of, like a list of translations here, and this is kind of a confusion of a mess. 
Do your best. Take us through it. Go ahead. <laughs> all, right, all right. To sum up this word, Hades, in the New American Standard and the American Standard Version, they both say, O death, where is thy victory? O Hades, where is thy victory? But the New International Version says, O Hades, where is your victory? At the end of the verse. And the King James Version goes, O grave, where is thy victory? And the Young's literal translation says, O Hades, thy victory? And okay. that's it. <laughs> so, so, so the bottom line is when you line up all of those different translations, you can see that some of them leave the word untranslated because, like you said before, with the Sheol word, you just kind of don't want to get involved. But it's, the, the scripture is really simple. Oh, death, you know, where is thy victory? Oh, grave, where is thy sting? That's really what this is saying. Death and the grave just are their 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 ability to reign over us is going to be cut short and cut off yeah completely cut off and jesus is talking about the church here so there's a little more involved than we might think you made reference a moment ago to uh, lazarus that when lazarus came forth he was raised from the grave but did lazarus die again yes he did yes, yes. He, did. he went back so he didn't have a victory over death now, we believe he'll be raised yet again but for the church when they are raised they will never, ever be subject to death again. They have conquered death for all time. They have conquered the grave for all time. So you have this all-time conquering, and now let's put this all together with one last verse, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. And, and just before we do that, David, I had a question. Don't the Scriptures talk about a second death? You're saying, you know, there, there's no more death. Uh, I don't know. Help me with this. Well, that's right. The scriptures do talk about second death. And it's interesting that it uses the term second as though it wants to contrast with the first. And the first is a kind of death that will be done away with forever. But the second death is more than just death. It's total destruction. And we have the scripture in Revelation 20, verse 14, that makes that distinction very nicely. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So this is interesting that Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. That by itself shows that Hades is not the lake of fire, but it is, as we have suggested, the grave. And what it is saying is that this type of death, this first death, I'm going to use a different term, Adamic death, all death due to the sin of Adam is going to be resolved. It's going to, everyone who has died in Adam is going to be made alive in Christ. Paul tells us that in Romans. And so when the last person comes out of the grave in the family of Adam, there is no more Adamic death anymore. There is nobody in the grave due to the sin of Adam. And there's nobody in the grave, so there's no Hades anymore. That's been resolved. Both of those things thrown into the lake of fire. The second death is a picture of total and complete destruction. Remember the word Gehenna that we talked about earlier? Here is the concept. We link back to that. The second death, the lake of fire, Gehenna, all represent the same thing. Total, complete, complete and everlasting destruction for all eternity. And what's left after that? Well, life and peace and happiness will prevail forevermore. You know, it's, it's like God says, okay, death is going to have its its run, but when it's over, we're going to crumple it up and throw it away into the garbage dump. And and that's exactly what the plan of God is doing. So, David, as as, as we wrap up here, uh, just, just 30 seconds, looking back over the mistranslations and the words that we talked about today, just your, your impressions as we, as we close. Well, I think it's a beautiful example for us all uh, as we are students of the Bible that we have the tools necessary to go back and to check the meanings of the words. And again, check your reference source uh, a couple of times because not all of the reference sources uh, agree on the meanings of things, the application of things. So you kind of have to use your own judgment. But as we're studying, be aware that there are things that may not be translated quite right or the meaning we don't quite get. So uh, as diligent Bible students, we should go back and see those. What we've considered for in the, in the first four parts, and we've got one more part to go, has given everyone a good example of the type of things that they should be looking for. All right, David. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your diligent work on putting all of this together. Folks, this has been four parts. There's one more part coming next week. And the reason there are so many is because this is a big subject. Because understanding what the Bible really says 
is not something that's just going to come to you magically. It comes through the gift of God's Spirit so we can understand, and our diligence with that gift to look into the Scriptures to know what the mind of God is, know what the plan of God is, so we can preach the true gospel that Jesus Christ brought to us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That's the gospel, and we get the translations correct. That's what we see. David, thank you again. Folks, this is a major undertaking for every one of us. Figure it out. Work on it. Think about it. Listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback. Send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Next week, part five. Has the Bible been mistranslated, misunderstood? Talk to you then.